electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, right now on Fast, an October surprise. Stocks surging out the gate to start the last quarter of 2022 and rates dropping sharply as hopes for a less hawkish Fed. They start rearing up. So is this a case of bad news is actually good news? And can this rally hold? And speaking of surprises, OPEC Plus readying its biggest output cut since the start of the pandemic, what it means for oil prices and that data point that everyone is watching, inflation. Plus, Tesla gets trounced, Box jumps higher, and Credit Suisse bounces off record lows. The headlines driving those stocks and the trades behind them. I am Frank Holland, in for Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money live from the NASDAQ market site, right in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, we have Dan Nathan right here to my left, Guy Adami, Karen Feinerman, and Julie Beal of Kane Anderson Rudnick. And we start with a major rally to kick off October and, of course, Q4. The benchmark index is all rising more than two and a quarter percent. The Dow rising more than 900 points at its highs. The S&P up as much as 3.1 percent. And then meanwhile, Treasury yields dropped to their lowest level in nearly two weeks, with the 10-year very briefly falling between 3.6 percent. You've got to remember, it touched 4 percent just last Wednesday. The move's coming after the Dow and the S&P wrapped up their worst month since the start of the pandemic. But is the stock market rally just an oversold bounce, or is there some real reason to be optimistic? Dan Nathan, you're right here with me. That's the question I'm going to pose to you. I want to start off with something about yeah. the NASDAQ, actually. We were talking about this before the show. Yeah. A really broad-based rally in the NASDAQ. Mercado Libre, Regeneron, LAM Research, a chip maker that's been beaten up a bit. But then you look at the S&P, it's all oil names pushing the index higher. What does that tell you about? Well, it's interesting. You know, hey, great to have you here, Thank Frank. You. Let's do this thing. All right. Um, you know, it was a really interesting day in the market. And you actually encapsulated a lot into your, your, your entree to the program here today because there was a lot of, there was like a tale of two markets in a way, right? And so... Um, um, when you think about what was driving the S&P 500, I think you know waking up and seeing a 6% gain in crude oil and then the stocks kind of following through for that, really important here, okay? But then back to the NASDAQ. It seemed to be all over the place. It took Apple a little time to get going here. We know that that was one that was clearly on our radar um, last week or so. But here's the most important thing, man. You know, we had the S&P down 9% last month alone. We had the NASDAQ down 10%. Things felt really ugly. Both indices closed at new 52-week lows as of Friday, but I think you nailed it. I think this reversal in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield that touched 4.01% last week, trading as low as 3.6% today, the dollar coming in, but it doesn't set up for a great, I think, rally. I mean, we might get 5% or 6% off of these lows, but when you think about yields being down and crude being up, that speaks to stagflation. We're just starting to see earnings estimates come down, strategists throwing in the, the targets here, you know what I mean? So to me, you may get a little bit of a run here. It's not just one that I'd chase. This is not how the bear market ends. So, Karen, over to you. I know you're kind of in the camp of bad news is actually good news, but you're also watching that rapid decline in rates when it comes to the 10-year. I mean, it's hard to say it's rapid, but just on Friday, we were about 20 basis points higher. Today, we fall 20 basis points. Is that really what's driving the market action in your mind? I think part of it, I mean, one thing I look at a lot is the five-year, five-year, which is, what are the five-year forward expectations of inflation five years from now? 
And that has actually come in quite a bit. So I think, you know, you had said, is this market, is this rally because the market was oversold? Yes. Or is this rally because people think maybe the Fed eventually will cool sooner than later uh, or, or rather pull back? And I think yes to that, too, because inflation really does seem to be coming in. So that's that's the whole sort of um, crux of what the Fed is doing. We have to fight inflation. And so to the extent it's coming in, then we're closer to the end. So I think both of those things were a part of today's rally. And, you know, maybe we'll get even Dan. Dan, you said last week we could see a 5% rally up or down. Wouldn't shock you either way. Um, wouldn't shock me either. But I'm, I'm thinking we got a little more momentum to the upside. So, Guy, over to you. No shock at all. Like, again, I've been really watching the NASDAQ, which is much more broad-based. The S&P, it's all oil names at the top right there. When I look at the NASDAQ, you see even a name like Old Dominion Freight Lines pushing the NASDAQ even higher. Not a kind of stock that you think about when you talk about the NASDAQ. When I wake up in the morning, I'm shocked. So let's just put that out there. And it is great to have you, Frank. No, I, <laughs> Listen, I, you know, we try to explain things. Some days you can't explain things, and we don't try to. Other days... It seems to make some sense. I mean, obviously, first day of the new quarter, I think there's some inflows, number one. That ISM number that came out this morning was, in a word, a disaster, which is good news for the market. And the new orders component, which came at the lowest level we've seen below 50 since the spring of 2020, was also a disaster. Again, gave people hope that maybe this Fed is on the verge of doing something. I don't happen to think they are, and I understand what Karen is saying. Yes, I would submit inflation probably is coming down, but we're nowhere near the 2% that they're longing for. So that's out there. On top of that, you know, I think it was a question of, listen, we had a couple of really bad days to the downside. VIX typically when it gets to 34, that's a bit of an inflection point. That happened last week as well. But by no means do I view any of this as particularly bullish long term. I, I do think we trade 3,400 in the S&P. I think it happens by the end of this year, which is, by the way, coming very quickly. And, you know, I think it's just a matter of time before we get there. With Dan's point, though, can we bounce first? Absolutely. Three to five percent from here would be um, perfectly normal. Julie, what do you think? Three to four percent, perfectly normal? Sure. I mean, bear market rallies are, you know, they happen all the time. It's pretty typical in what you would expect. I think what's important to note is that we're not being driven that much off of the fundamentals. And what's really going to be critical is how this earnings season goes down, not so much for the earnings themselves, but for the forward guidance and the level of business confidence that's out there. I think that's pretty critical in terms of how holiday is going to look for the consumer, but also business investment longer term. If people are really concerned about inflation, do they accelerate their ordering patterns? Do they hold back? I think that's going to be really critical to understanding the direction of this market, less so kind of the, the emotions that seem to be happening in the last 10 or so days. Well, today we got a few data points that make things a little bit easier for stocks. The dollar, it eased up a bit, it cooled off a bit, and we already mentioned rates. How important do you think the dollar is to the narrative in the stocks and stocks for Q4 at least, uh, Guy, as we go forward? Extraordinarily important. I mean, remember, micro, I know you know this, Microsoft warned on a higher dollar it's got to be three months or so ago, and the dollar's really only gone up since. So you're going to start to hear more and more companies, I would assume, uh, if they don't warn on currency, they will definitely uh, lose EPS or lose revenues on the back of currency. So that's out there without question. I think the trajectory of the dollar is still higher. I think, though, we're in this point where you're seeing a bit of a back and fill. We saw the same type of move back in June, and I think it's predicated on the hope, again, 
that somehow this Fed pauses. They've given no indication of that happening, by the way, and I don't think they will. Everything that's happening right now in terms of the miserable numbers is what they want and, quite frankly, what they need. And unless credit falls apart, which we haven't seen, you know, I don't think the stock market is something they're all that concerned with. Dan, I see you over here out the corner of my eye. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, you know, I would say that they, there is a good chance that they pause towards the end of this month. And if, especially if you continue to see data like this or some of the stress that some of the people were worried about over the weekend as it relates to the banking system, I don't particularly think there's systemic right. risk right there. Um, but, but again, if the last piece of this puzzle is if unemployment starts to tick up, maybe that's the final thing that the Fed is waiting for. Because I see what Karen sees. I see what Guy sees. And I also see, importantly, what Julie sees, is that if we do see an acknowledgement of corporate profits slowing of corporate profit margins that were just hit peaks, if they are to be coming in, then maybe the Fed has done a lot of what they are meant to do. And maybe this quick reversal in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is signifying that growth is, in fact, slowing. We're going to get that September jobs number um, at the end of this week. So, you know, could we, the next Fed meeting, November 2nd, a week before the midterms, we talked about this a little bit last week, if there is a trial balloon floated towards the end of this month that the Fed may go 50 basis points. If you look at the CME Fed Funds uh, futures tracker, it is kind of coming way back in towards a 50 basis point hike. It was very much leaning towards 75 just a couple weeks ago. So towards the end of this month, if earnings are not or guidance is not as bad as expected, but we're starting to see some of that weaker data, but also inflationary uh, inputs come in, I could see a Fed pausing towards the end of this month. Yeah, a lot of people talking pause or pivot. So where could the S&P be headed as we move into the final quarter of 2022? The chart master re-upping his message from April. Expect some red arrows from here. Let's bring in Carter Worth of Worth Charting for much more. Hey there, Carter. Hey, Frank. Thanks so much. Well, I mean, I think we know this, that there is this hope, right, that because the dollar has cracked a bit and the yields have come in, that somehow the S&P is off to the races. I think it's going to be dollar lower, yields lower, and equities lower. Look at this first chart. We know how well-defined these lines have been. The bull case, not mine, look at the next chart, that we were to have yet another rally, and that rally takes us right back to the downtrend line in effect since the Jan 4 high. If that's your premise, not you personally, you generically, you're talking about 8% up from here. The bear case, that we crack, that we don't sort of bounce, put in double bottom, you can see it on the next chart, and that we are heading down into the 3,300 plus minus level. I think that is the scenario that's likely. Um, but we certainly know this, that there are a lot of people on both sides and it will be determined uh, one way or the other. Let's talk about yields, because that seems to be the thing that is the flavor of the day. This is a very minor short-term chart, basically since August 1, and the dip in yields uh, leaves us right on trend. Now, could we go a bit further? Yes. Take a look at this longer term chart and then quickly to the final chart. What we have is a dip that leaves us almost back to that spike high of June. The real question is, are we headed materially lower? I think so. And I think that while that would be considered on the surface a positive for equities, it actually is gonna be something quite the opposite. All right, Carter, just to be clear, your point of view is the bear case in the situation. The S&P falls about 10 percent. So is key to that interest rates continue to climb or are there other things that could make your bear case turn out to be true? No, I'm saying I think you've reached the point where you're going to have interest rates not go higher and equities are, are actually going to realize that it's for the wrong reasons. 
and equities go lower as well. All right, Carter Worth, we appreciate it. All right, let's trade it. Karen, I'm going to come over to you. I was looking at the monitor while, while Carter was talking, and you were kind of looking at his thesis there. What's your take on what Car- Carter's saying there? Well, uh, so it's very interesting. Carter's obviously really good at his job. I was wondering, does the bounce scenario mean the other scenario doesn't happen? And I'm wondering, could we see this bounce first and then the down lower past that trend line? And, and so that would be quite a big fall from, from a bounce. That absolutely could happen. I guess, uh, you know, my, my compass is always, I'm always long, so I'm always, you know, more optimistic. And I think that um, if rates do go lower, that that will inherently be good for stocks. I know he's saying that's not the case, but I think that it will be, particularly for the high flyers who've been decimated. That's not my my that's not in my portfolio, but I do think it would be some somewhat of a floor for those stocks. Julie, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I I think it's an interesting point, right? Because to me, Carter's point is actually more fundamental. And it's, you know, if interest rates are declining because the fundamentals are deteriorating, inherently that's problematic for equities. And, you know, I agree that there is so much desire to tick the bottom. And that seems to be what drives all of these rallies is this idea that, oh, we've reached it and we're all going to jump in all at once. And I think we just have to let the fundamentals play out because it's important to keep in mind that the rally that we experienced over the last two or three years, yes, fundamentals were good, but a lot of it was valuation driven and connected to low interest rates. And so we're still not at a point where equities are really that cheap. And so it's hard to get really bold up and enthusiastic when you haven't had this real capitulation where you threw out the baby, the bathwater, the whole bathroom. We're, we're just not there yet. And I think it's just going to take time for that to circulate through the fundamentals. Yeah, capitulation has been a big word for this market in recent months. Guy, are you agreeing that we're still a good ways away from the moment of capitulation? I haven't seen the only panic I've seen over the last, except for a couple days since January, has been to the upside. And I'm not suggesting today was panic at all. But you have seen, you know, typically we associate a panic with selling. I would say since January or so, you've seen panic buying at least four or five different times. So let's put that out there. I don't think we've seen capitulation to the downside, number one. And, you know, I think there's this misguided belief out there, and I'm not suggesting anybody on this panel says that, but, you know, somehow if the Fed does pivot, all our concerns of going away, that's not the case. The reality is we're in a period of slowdown, uh, slowing revenue growth, slowing earnings growth, and how much you're willing to pay for this earnings in this environment and we're still too expensive so earnings are going to come down we're going we're seeing a slowdown right before our very eyes and even if the fed were to pivot it's not going to it's not going to cure the ills that corporate america are feeling right now all right coming up we're keeping our eyes on rivian shares on the move after the company reported auto sales and deliveries we'll bring you those numbers coming up next and speaking of ev deliveries check out tesla tumbling after a big miss on deliveries So where is the right place to be in this trade? We're charging into that one next when Fast Money returns right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. 
I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. And welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Rivian surging after the company reported production and delivery numbers for the latest quarter. Our Phil LeBeau has the details. Hey there, Phil. Frank, the reason the stock is moving higher is because of the production numbers. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Here's the latest numbers from Rivian. Deliveries in the third quarter of 6,584 vehicles. Remember, the production guidance was for 25,000 vehicles. We're showing you Q1 to 2 to 3, the latest number, 7363. That's an increase of 67%. Look, they need to come up with another 10,687 vehicles in the fourth quarter in order to hit 25,000. That's an increase of 45%, and I think there's optimism that they should hit that mark. So that's why shares of Rivian moving higher. As for Tesla, a completely different story. The company missing Q3 delivery estimates by 6%, delivering 343,000 vehicles. The street was expecting 364. Now, they did produce 365,000 vehicles, but they couldn't deliver all of them because of the cost of logistics, some of the issues with that for the surge of deliveries at the end of the quarter. Nonetheless, as you take a look at shares uh, or if you take a look at annual deliveries from Tesla, keep in mind that the estimate is for them to deliver 1.36 million vehicles this year. So they'll have to have a healthy increase in the fourth quarter. Also take a look at Q3 auto sales, GM, Hyundai, Stellantis and Toyota. Generally speaking, they're all in line with expectations. Remember, it's in comparison to the third quarter of last year. And, Frank, that was a lumpy quarter in terms of production. And while the stock's got a nice boost today for the general, the legacy automakers, keep in mind that they're almost all at or near 52-week lows. All right. Thanks a lot, R. Phil LeBeau. All right, let's trade it, Dan. Uh, Rivian, let's start off with them. they got to hit 10,000 more vehicles in the yeah. fourth quarter. Phil saying everybody thinks that they can do it. What's your take? Probably, and they, and they probably will, and they actually have a channel. Obviously, they're selling into Amazon. I mean, like, if we think about what Tesla just did, I mean, they missed their delivery number. They didn't miss the number of cars that they supposedly made, or they didn't miss them by that much. Um, when you think about the difference here is that Tesla is selling to a consumer, right, that is basically buying a very high-end car. Um, they have to do it outside the U.S., predominantly for growth. They're dealing with the strength of the dollar here. All the other supply chain issues, I'll take them at face value. I just I just think that the Rivian story versus the Tesla story, it's kind of like getting involved with Tesla, you know, seven or eight years ago now. And I think that at the scale in which Tesla is right now, they have a whole host of problems here. And I just don't see how Tesla hits that number. And I'll just say this, the way Tesla closed today, this was something really important for this stock. I think in this market cycle here, especially with the NASDAQ and the S&P surging, this is the fifth largest stock in the market here, or six or something like that here, closing very near the dead lows. So it's something fundamentally changed in my 
my opinion, we had this AI day last Friday. It was a bunch of nonsense, and then the delivery missed. So to me, I think this stock probably heads back towards those lows from June. So, Dan, you're saying that they're selling the consumer, but, Julie, I'm going to ask you, I mean, what better time to sell the consumer when we see surging gas prices, a huge secular trend that you would think would actually push people towards electric vehicles? Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure they've gotten some kind of a boost from that. But at the end of the day, it's still a pretty expensive car. You have no good tax credit, right, because they've used that all up. Um, you know, I think it's a relief to see Tesla actually trading on what happens in the cars rather than what's happening with Twitter stock. So I guess that's a positive. But broadly speaking, it's an expensive car. And, and I agree with Dan, like its supply chain has gotten extremely complicated and it's trying very much to move beyond just being cars. So they have this cute little robot. I mean, it's the same as Facebook with the metaverse, right? We're going to dump a bunch of money into this other business line that doesn't really make a ton of sense, and we have no idea what the profitability is. It's just a distraction. I think Rivian is a little bit cleaner story at this point. All right, Julie Beal, a few zingers for Elon Musk there. All right, a lot more Fast Money to come Always. up. Here's what's coming up next. Crude cruising higher as producers consider the largest cut since the start of the pandemic. Could that send oil gushing back to triple digits? Plus, a crisis of confidence at one major European bank, as shares of Credit Suisse hit all-time lows. Can the firm weather the storm? And is this a signal of broader stresses in the financial sector? We break it down. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Energy prices jumping today. WTI crude soaring more than 5%. Traders betting that OPEC Plus will cut production by more than 1 million barrels per day. It's the biggest cut since the start of the pandemic, if it happens. Our next guest believes the fallout could be especially bullish for energy prices. Patrick Tahan is Gas Buddy's head of petroleum analysis. Patrick, thanks for being here. Good to be with you. So, Patrick, last time I talked to you, you and I actually spoke during the Colonial Pipeline issue where uh, gas prices surged because of that whole issue. We're not going to do a history lesson, but I want to talk to you about OPEC Plus, their production cuts. You actually believe it could reach uh, those cuts could lead oil to reach $100 a barrel. Explain the thesis here, because right now we're about, what, 85 bucks a barrel? We certainly are. And keep in mind how much uh, how tight global inventories remain. There's been much said about an economic slowdown, but Keep in mind, even the USSPR, just that alone is 180 million barrels of potential future demand as the administration is going to have to refill that. Global inventories, uh, like I said, of crude oil remain extremely tight. A lot of that's still because of a rather brisk year for consumption. That is a return to pre-COVID levels or at least very close. Uh, so I think OPEC is certainly very much ahead of this. But of course, 
Uh, they're doing this likely to send the recent decline on the concern that there could be a protracted long economic slowdown. So we're talking a lot about economic slowdown, but in reality, China hasn't fully reopened yet. How does a fully reopened China change this narrative? Well, as you mentioned, uh, China's been shutting down uh, themes uh, more often than not in the last few months. And so Chinese demand has remained relatively muted. But once China uh, starts to reopen on a more permanent basis, you can expect their oil consumption certainly to go up very much like we saw in the U.S. last year when American motorists that had cabin fever really saw demand go up significantly. So that is certainly something that could happen in China as they reopen. Uh, and that is something that could keep oil prices uh, going up as we approach the end of the year. Keep in mind as well, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, oil being used as a replacement to natural gas production and to heat homes. So certainly moving into the fall and winter, I think oil is going to have more strength than what we've seen in quite some time. Yeah, Patrick, I agree with you. I think, listen, the crude move has been interesting from 135 down to levels we saw a week or so ago. We're bouncing now. And so much of that sell-off to me has been people front-running potential demand destruction on the back of everything we talk about, slowdown globally, all that stuff. Problem is, we haven't seen that demand destruction. At what point do people say, you know what, that demand destruction isn't coming and your scenario plays out? Well, exactly to your point, you know, there's been a lot said that gasoline demand is really going to soften up, that we're starting to see the the onset of an economic slowdown. But looking at gas buddy data, gasoline consumption last week actually rose close to 2% week over week. Now, a lot of that could be because of Hurricane uh, uh, Ian. But uh, uh, again, a lot here. Consumers are not really slowing down. Keep in mind, even as California prices have now exploded to over $6 a gallon, we're not seeing much of a slowdown in consumption. So the risk is that we're not going to see the typical fall off in consumption and that OPEC's cut could exacerbate tightness in inventory seen globally. Patrick, it's Karen. Thanks for coming on. Is there any chance that there could be any kind of a supply response from the U.S.? Are we going absolutely all out or is there any any room there? I, I certainly think there is room for potential for U.S. drillers. Uh, in recent weeks, as oil prices have sagged and been under pressure, we have seen the rig count respond by slowing down. So I still think there's some room for improvement. Uh, oil producers likely uh, a little bit more pessimistic as oil prices have fallen. But Keep in mind, if OPEC shuts the door by cutting production, that could open the door for U.S. drilling going into the winter and spring. All right, Patrick Zahan, Gas Buddies Head of Petroleum Analysis. We appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, let's trade it. We just heard what Patrick broke down, Dan. I mean, what's your take? Is oil just fundamentally going to have to move higher just because of what we're seeing from the cuts? And then, of course, over in Europe, they're going to need uh, more energy as we go into the winter. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, we've spent a lot of time talking about natural gas and what that could mean for the European economy in general here. You know, the crude oil thing, especially as we've gotten through this supposed summer driving season, everything, th this one's a little bit tougher to me, especially when we have China and the fits and starts that we've seen over there with kind of the lockdowns and what that economy is doing right now. I'm just not particularly bullish on oil right now, especially if everything that we've talked about so far really speaks to a weakening U.S. economy, which is right now doing far better than almost every other developed economy in the world. So to me, I'm not looking to play oil here from the long side. I'd rather look to see some things that massive secular shifts are taking place, whether it be technology and I can look out one or two years. And I think there's been some sort of like generational resets or so 
so, whether it be on, on valuations or, or whatever. That's what interests me. Playing oil right here, listen, pre-pandemic, we all thought this was a dead-bang loser for the most part, right? So I just don't know why this is one I want to come back to right now when we are not in the roaring 20s. So, Karen, really quick over to you. I was talking to some of you guys earlier. I mean, is this potentially a case where the U.S. consumer comes back in and starts spending a lot more money on gas, just driving for the holidays, heating homes and things like that? That might also be a reason for prices to continue to spike. Was that to me, Frank? I couldn't, couldn't oh, Karen, hear it to you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I, it depends. It depends how everything else is going, where rates are, where other inflationary um, commodities are and whether they're employed. So I don't I don't know. I don't have a lot of clarity there. All right. Fair point. Fair point. I think a lot of questions about gasoline demand here in the United States and also heating when it comes to the wintertime. We have a mild winter or severe winter. Just have to wait and see on that one. All right. Sticking in the oil space, shares of Brazilian producer Petrobras spiking as former leader Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva holds a narrow lead in that country's presidential election. And options traders are seeing more upside ahead. Mike Coe joins us now with the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. We saw six times the average daily call volume in Petrobras, well over a couple hundred thousand contracts trading there. The trade that I saw that was kind of interesting to me was the November 15, 17, 19 call butterfly. We saw somebody purchase 3,500 of those. That's buying the 15 strike call, selling two of the 17s and then buying one of the 19s, targeting that short $17 call strike price. 3,500 times laying out a little over $100,000 in premium in the bet there is that PBR could rise north of 20% between now and November expiration. All right, Mike Coe, we appreciate it. For more options action, be sure to tune in to the full show on Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. And coming up, we're digging to the latest uh, of Credit Suisse's wild day, with the Swiss bank's troubles could mean for the broader financial sector. Plus, a big day for Box. Shares of the cloud stock surging, as analysts say they're seeing real value in the stock. We'll talk about what had them so bullish when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Credit Suisse rising today after briefly hitting a new all-time low. The rebound coming even as liquidity concerns surround the company. Leslie Picker joins us now with more on the situation and what it could mean for the big banks here in the U.S. Leslie. Pretty volatile price activity in Credit Suisse shares today. That comes as executives sought to dispel this notion that took fire on social media over the weekend that the firm was on the brink of collapse. A lot of conjecture and rumor contributing to this vortex of fear on the internet. So let's take a step back and dissect the facts as we know them at this time about the health of the firm. Now, amid a slumping stock price and spiking credit default swaps, which insure bondholders in the event of a default, Credit Suisse's CEO sent out an internal memo obtained by CNBC on Friday. In it, he said, quote, I trust that you are not confusing our day-to-day -day stock price performance with the strong capital base and liquidity position of the bank. Sound familiar to some, that language was really reminiscent of the financial crisis when bank CEOs tried to go out to the public and assuage counterparties and investors and employees that their firms were on stable footing only to go under shortly thereafter. But 
Unlike the financial crisis, where investors could pinpoint those banks that had faulty mortgage-backed securities, it's unclear what, if anything, could cause Credit Suisse to face major issues. Based on publicly available financial statements, the firm has a respectable 13.5 CET1 ratio, which is a measure of a firm's ability to withstand distress, and about a third of its assets on its balance sheet are in liquid, low-risk deposits and securities. So the big question mark is really this purported transformation plan that's set to be unveiled when it reports third quarter earnings on October 27th. The overhaul itself is expected to consist of divestitures and restructuring certain business units, including reportedly siphoning off some of their risky assets into a, quote, bad bank. Analysts estimate that this process could be very costly and with where equity and bonds are trading, perhaps even more so. Frank? Our Leslie Picker with the story there. Dan, I'm going to turn to you. Does this have any impact on U.S. banks? Is there a, a, a chance of, quote, unquote, contagion hitting the U.S.? Well, first things first, uh, full disclosure, I've been a consultant to Credit Suisse's Technology Investment Banking Group for the last six years here. And, you know, I work with a lot of very committed uh, professionals there. And this is not a stage comment. I'll just say this, that, you know, um, when you think about these banks and what they exist to do, they exist to serve customers and solve, in many cases, very complex problems. So when you have a situation like going on right now, I mean, if you were watching Twitter all weekend, you would have thought it was September 2008. And I think Leslie's report right there would say that it doesn't really feel like that in, in, in many other banks that people might be concerned about it. Just the, the liquidity situation relative to the leverage, le relative to what's going on right now, doesn't seem to be the case. When you think about U.S. banks here, I mean, Guy will tell you this. I just heard him say it two hours ago. I mean, never have we seen U.S. banks as well capitalized. Maybe the, the, some of the regulation that we saw in the wake of the financial crisis did their job. So the way the banks traded today, you know, with J.P. Morgan Wells, these stocks up 3%, didn't make it feel like there is something brewing in the offing here. So obviously U.S. banks, well, uh, better capitalized. But Julie, I, we were talking earlier, you said just what we're seeing with Credit Suisse, it just gives you pause. Yeah, it's concerning. I mean, partly I'm triggered. Like I worked at Lehman Brothers as a baby banker in 2008. And I just remember getting those emails that were like, pay no attention to the stock price and just do your jobs. So, you know, I think there's a tiny concern about that. This has this firm has a history of trying to restructure itself, improve itself. It obviously has a solid private wealth management business, but in investment banking, it's, it's been more of a struggle for that business. So I, I think if you look at the fundamentals, it's concerning the way that they've had to try to improve themselves and be more competitive with other firms. You wonder about how easy it is to retain talent, maintain talent, which is so critical to these businesses. But I, I think for everyone, it should just give us a little bit of pause. I agree that from a liquidity and capital structure perspective, U.S. banks and Credit Suisse itself doesn't appear to be at great risk. But I worry about other blowups and mistakes like Archegos and, and what else could be brewing in terms of what is on prime brokerage. Karen, do you make anything of this that it could potentially impact our U.S. banks? Or does it make you even concerned possibly about the broader group of European banks? So the one thing that I really didn't like to see was how Credit Suisse debt was trading, which was not well. So that's sort of a concern. You know, banks are such fragile structures in that if you think there's a problem, that could create a problem, which is different than sort of an industrial company um, where that, that sort of perception isn't quite as important. All that having been said, though, I feel like I'm going to echo Guy and Dan with the U.S. banks, um, you know, their, their balance sheets now, their capital um, structures now. 
and the amount of reserves they have. I think that this is a very different situation than 2008. Um, I would never say never, but it's not my highest concern right now. So I'm long the banks, just full disclosure, I'm long the banks. And um, I actually like the space here. I think the sell-off in the banks has been way overdone. Yeah, Guy, last word. Much ado about nothing, or are you paying attention to this? No, you have to pay attention. But what's interesting, again, not to pick on Credit Suisse and or Deutsche Bank, and not that it matters, but these are two banks that stocks made an all-time high in 2007. They've been going down ever since, and I find it really interesting uh, and almost something should be investigated that this news over the weekend came out giving shorts a huge opportunity to cover. Look at the price action today in both Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse traded 370 at basically 939 this morning, spent the rest of the day going higher. Deutsche Bank the same, Credit Suisse trading three times normal volume. To me, it just reeks of, you know, somebody putting stuff out there over the weekend in hopes of being able to cover a short position. So I'll throw that out there just in case anybody's listening or watching. But should you be concerned? Absolutely. Is it systemic? I don't think so. But it speaks to problems that have been brewing for quite some time. All right. Certainly something to watch. All right. Coming up here on Fast Money, put on your gloves. It's time to box. The one-two punch analysts say this stock can deliver to have a knockout year. Those details ahead. And throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we're celebrating our teammates and our contributors. Here is the CEO of Schwab Asset Management. Hispanics in the U.S. represent a powerful economic power with $1.9 trillion in purchasing power. But most importantly, we have a great culture and a great set of traditions. We are very proud of our past. But we also take very serious our responsibility for the shape of the future of this country. Hope you can join us to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. I am sure you will learn a lot about our traditions. And who knows, you may be able to pick up a couple of dance moves. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Box topping the tape today, climbing more than 9% after an upgrade from Morgan Stanley. Analysts citing the cloud company's higher retention and lower churn as key for handling a post-COVID workforce. Morgan Stanley saying the stock has more than 25% upside from today's close. Julie, I'm going to come over to you. That note also highlights their partnership with Microsoft. What's your take on Box? Yeah, I think they are successfully competing a good pivot away from just being cloud storage, which is a pretty commoditized business, and they're trying to embed themselves in the workflows. And so the lower churn is, is evidence that this, is, this strategy is actually working. The other thing is they're you know, having their salespeople talk about the cost savings that Box can give you rather than any kind of revenue lift. And I think in a tougher economic environment, that's going to really resonate with their customers. It's also a less expensive software sale than a lot of what's out there. So I, I think they're fairly well positioned to weather the storm. Guy, what do you think? One thing to note here on previous earnings, they flagged currency risk from the rising dollar. Yeah, I mean, I think that's out there. I think it's pretty much discounted in the stock. And if you're a technician out there, you look at where we just traded down to in box. We basically traded down, took a look at the lows we made in June, bounce. I actually like this Morgan Stanley call. Dan can speak to this. You know, at four times-ish revenue, it's not ridiculously expensive, especially where a lot of these names had been or currently are trading. So I do think this stock can bounce from here. It's definitely something to trade 
from the trade at the long side against for sure. Yeah, shares finished today up 9%, trading slightly lower in, in the uh, after hours trading, however. All right, coming up, our diamonds and investors' best friend. We're cutting into the mineral market with the CEO of the company producing the world's first diamond commodity. That interview is coming up next. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Even with $1.2 trillion in market value, diamonds have not had their own regulated asset until very recently. Diamond Standard offers the first ever diamond commodity, including tokenized diamond bars and coins. The company just completed a $30 million capital raise. And founder and CEO Cormac Kinney is expanding the, quote, untapped potential of this precious resource. So, number one, thank you for being here. I mean, you brought some party favors. Let's take a look at this right here. I mean, this is what we're talking about right here. And when you're talking about diamonds as a regulated asset. So we all know what diamonds are. We all know that they're valuable. Explain the business that you're launching. Well, diamonds are interesting because second only to gold, they're the most valuable hard natural resource, worth more than all the silver, platinum, and palladium combined. But they've always been out of reach to investors because every diamond's a little bit different and no one knows what their diamonds are worth. So what we solved using computer science is we made a singular spot commodity, a coin and a bar, where every coin is equal. Inside, the diamonds all add up to a public standard, and because they're all equal, they trade at the same price, which enables us to have price discovery, liquidity, and ability to mark to market, which is what an investor needs. All right, so Cormac, hold those up for a second. So what's the value of each one of these? These are the disks you're talking about here. These are, we call them the coins. So there's a diamond standard coin and bar. We don't set the price. The price, like gold, is set every day by trading. So today, I think the price is 58.80. These are up 40, uh, sorry, 30 percent in the two years since we launched them, outperforming gold by over 40 percent, outperforming the S&P by about 20 percent. So I like to call it the uh, diamond rush is, uh, is underway. Yeah, so talk to us about that rush. Is it predominantly right now institutional investors who are looking for uncorrelated assets? And how are they accessing this? You just mentioned these are tokenized, right? And they're standardized as far as value. How would an investor, first institutional and possibly retail, probably in the not so distant future, access this market? So the clients now are mostly self-directed investors, hedge funds, and family offices. Uh, We're building the depth of liquidity to allow institutional investors, and it'll take a little while. Right now, investors buy direct from diamondstandard.co at the market price, at the spot. And recently, a major breakthrough was we've launched just last week the first spot market where you can buy and sell from peer to peer Mm -hmm. and uh, giving all of the investors in this product liquidity. Cormac, I know you have a great history with uh, starting things like this. You've been successful at everything you've done. Here's my question. Is this something that people will take physical delivery of? Is that a potential or is this going to trade seemingly the same way gold, palladium, all the things you mentioned trade? Well, the key was we started at that foundation. This is a good for delivery coin, which is acceptable to CME to settle futures contracts. We have that approval. We haven't launched the contract yet. So far, about 5% of our clients take delivery where we send this to them wherever they live. Gold bugs, they want to keep it under their bed. That's fine. (laughs) 
The vast majority of our clients, though, do keep it at Brinks, where we built a vault in, in Delaware. And inside the commodity, there's actually a wireless computer chip that stores a blockchain token. So while these sit in Brinks, everyone can trade that token on the spot market for instant regulator-approved settlement. So Cormac, you're obviously very bullish on the future of diamonds. Are you bullish because we might be heading into a recession or is this a long-term play beyond recession? Is this something that you see people holding on to over longer periods of time, either even past 2023 or 2024? Well, commodities generally do very well in periods of recession. Uh, and we're definitely in a commodity super cycle where commodities will tend to trade above the moving average for 10, even 20 years. But more importantly, diamonds are only now being unlocked as an asset. So if you look at every precious metal, even palladium, I've never seen a palladium bar. 15% of all the world's palladium is in a vault held by investors. With diamonds, that number is one to 2%. So we expect now that we have a spot commodity, <coughs> liquidity with the uh, market, we have futures and options approved, we've just launched a fund, and we're getting ready to file an exchange traded product we think that allows diamonds to catch up with palladium and that investors will buy 15%. That's a, maybe a five-year secular phase of position building that will drive prices, we think, very substantially. All right, certainly something to watch. Cormac, before we let you go, I, I just want you to hold up all these diamonds. You're being a little <laughs> modest here. There's about a million dollars in diamonds right here. I mean, just amazing. And so just roughly, based on today's prices, how much is each one of these coins or bars? So. Through the magic of math, uh, the bars are always 10 times the coin. So the coin today, last I looked, was 55,880. So the bars are 58,800. Developing a new asset class. Cormac Kinney, we appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right, coming up next, your final trade. Stay with Fast Money. And it's time for final trade. Let's go around the horn. Guy, you're first up. I think energy continues to rally. Valero, great having you on tonight, Frank. Guy, thank you. Julie, over to you. I like Encino. It's a company that serves banks and small software business. Uh, they have great track record. Karen. Yeah, thanks very much for filling in seamlessly, Frank. Second, happy birthday to my husband. And last, who's the beneficiary of all this inventory, re excess retail inventory? TJX. That's my final trade. Happy birthday to your husband as well, Karen. Dan, you get the last word. Yeah, happy birthday, Lawrence. Hey, did you get any of those diamonds? I just, uh, no, no, no. Um, I, I like the CME. I like the fact that, that diamond futures are going to be listed on the CME. All right, thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer. It starts right now. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 